Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is episode number 56 and I am Brooke McCallery. Nice to have you here. How are you, Benjamin? I'm very hot. How are you? I'm good. Also hot, of course, but... Uh, it's 30-something degrees and billion. has been 30-something degrees for as long as I can remember. It's, it is very warm. It's like... I don't know, do they call it the Indian summer? Is that what they call it? When summer is late finishing? It's, uh, I mean, weather talk is always really fascinating for people who aren't sitting here with us. So let's talk about it some more. It's just so frustrating because <laughs> we can't put a fan on all the air conditioning because it's going to make noise. And that's right. So that's, what we, that's what we suffer for, for uh, uh, the benefit of our listeners. This podcast is literally made at least 70% of sweat. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry, that's pretty gross. What's not made of sweat is the guest <laughs> today's. <laughs> I don't think that's that, – I think that might be correct. I don't believe he's that made of 70% the, sweat. That is the worst segue I've ever done. But this is me trying to keep the ball rolling. <laughs> Get off the topic. What James Warman is not is made entirely of sweat. But But – uh, actually, this is a really interesting conversation that I, I mean, like they all are, but on the face of it, James may not necessarily sound like a typical guest that I would have because he uh, he's an ex-advertising guy. He's a trends forecaster. That's sort of mostly what he does now, but he is also the author of Stuffocation, which is a book that came out last year all about our... Dream of Stuffocation. <laughs> It's all about the red hot chili peppers. No, it's all about too many syllables in that. Not enough. Not <clears throat> the right amount of syllables in that. Go on, please, while <laughs> I just you, dig a hole and bury myself. You good? Yeah. Suffocation is all about obviously the fact that we're suffocating under our stuff, and I like words that are that bring two words together. They're mm, one of my favourite things. Uh, it is, isn't it? It's really fun to do. Yeah. Now, of course, I can't think of any off the top of my head. What but was that website you were going to start up? <laughs> Redictions? Redictions. Ridiculous Rid- predictions? Yep. You should still do that. Well, Copyright. I own the domain, so oh, well too done. bad. Um, I, yeah, I love a good made-up word that actually gets a point across, which Stuffocation does. Uh, and on top of that, James, he's he's a um, a journalist, uh, a speaker. He writes regularly about things that are happening in society. But a few years ago, he coined the term experientialism, which has really taken off as another branch of this intentional, simpler way of living. And I thought it was really fascinating to talk to him about that because he's not like a, someone who identifies as a minimalist at all he's just you know he was just an average dude with heaps of stuff and you know has since had a family um and has experienced what that's that looks like and the expectations of bigger house fill it with more stuff uh and he he talks about it obviously in our conversation but he started to see this trend towards less you know people would were not content with continuing to just amass more and more stuff like it wasn't it wasn't serving them and he could see that this was there were these ideas that were shifting away from that so he um you know he digs into the research of it 
what that actually looks like for you know individual people but then also what it looks like kind of from a 10,000 foot view look at, at society and it's just it's really interesting as an ad man um, he and I kind of got into what he perceives is the branding problem that minimalism or simplicity mm. has and I thought that was really interesting because it's kind of it's it's just in its infancy really this idea of of slowing down living with less stuff but it's coming to a point where it's starting to be adopted into the mainstream and he said you know I don't want to give too much of our conversation away but he had some really interesting insights mm. into maybe how it's going to to be spoken about i think in the you know the wider population as people start to make the same realizations that we have which is mm. you know making memories and and having experiences is far more valuable than just amassing more stuff yeah 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 i, I it's i agree i agree and it's i think it's becoming more and more mainstream via the the hipster movement, which is now mainstream too, I, I guess. That, that you know, slow living and minimalist approach. Yeah. I think... Is that is that the problem that he has with it? Is that the no. branding issue that he has with it, with the fact that it's now trendy? No. No, not, no, not at all. Okay. Um, it's more the fact that when people talk about simplifying or minimising, it's about taking stuff away. It's like it's it's removing things and people don't like the idea of feeling like they're going to be left wanting. Okay. Whereas experientialism, which I'm quite convinced I pronounce incorrectly every time I say it. Yeah. <laughs> so Sounds just good. be forewarned. Um, is more about gaining experiences. You know, he talks specifically about the fact that he could – afford to buy a new car for his family but instead he's going to take them on an amazing holiday okay you so know that's that. that's, so it's, i think that's your bumper sticker message too yeah and it's really interesting philosophy yeah where mine is i think that as well as if there was a bumper sticker message for the way that i want to live my life it's quality over quantity which i think and that's the thing that, that i find really fascinating about this whole broad range of issues is that when you get down to it really most people are talking about the same thing. Mm. They're talking about, like, you can call it intentional living, you can call it values-based, you can call it simplicity or slow or minimalism, as long as you're not talking about like hardcore living out of a backpack minimalism, yeah. um, you know, which is awesome. But pretty much everyone who's talking about this stuff is not talking about the number of things they own. Mm. They're talking about living their life based on what is most important and what we actually discover. And I think sort of sits on the other side of this movement, whatever you want to call it, is the fact that the stuff is not the important stuff at all. And I think getting to that point is the realization, you know, yeah, we have things, we all have things, we we buy things, we own things, we use things. But for me, Getting to the other side of it is realizing that this stuff doesn't matter. Yeah, it's the other the the experiences, the people, the relationships, and pretty much anyone talking, writing about the movement now from a positive perspective is coming at it from that place. Yeah. So you know, I think part of James's point and something that I've thought about a lot is, uh, you know. <laughs> For him, you know, in his his role, what we label things matters because that's how 
trends are born, you know, you, to be able to label something makes it a trend, makes it something that people can talk about at barbecues. Whereas the, the like for me, it doesn't matter what you label it. It's about the way you're choosing to live and the way that impacts, you know, your, your, your life, not just the choices that you're making today. So anyway, as you can tell, this is this conversation really kind of got under my skin in a good way. I've been thinking about it a lot. We have been. So with the with the bumper sticker quality over quantity, it relates to experiences as well. Absolutely. Quality experiences over quantity experience because otherwise if it's quality and quantity, uh, sorry, more quantity than quality, you are Living a fast, non-intentional well, it's ex- life. It's excess. Excess. But then also the stuff and fangs as well. If it's if it's quality and quantity, you can have a big credit card personal debt. Mm. <laughs> you can, you're living basically beyond your means. And if it's just quantity over quality, again, it's just clutter. Mm-hmm. You're just going to have so much clutter around and your house is going to be full of... Crap. C-R-A-P. But I think um, I think that I had something really good to say then and I forgot it. What you're going to talk about is the show notes to this podcast. Sure. You can head over to slowyourhome.com slash 56 and there you'll find links to James's book, Stuffocation, and his website, which is stuffocation.org. You can also uh, find links to his social media. He's at James Wallman on Twitter and I think just Stuffocation on Facebook. And any other, uh, you know, links that we talk about in the show, you can also find there. There was still really something good that I was going to say. Anyway. I know. Yep. Um, who's sponsoring this podcast? This podcast is brought to you by audible.com. Uh, as as you probably know, Audible can uh, can get 180,000 audio products into your ears, into your brain. Uh, and if you wanted to grab yourself a free audiobook as a part of a 30-day trial, head to audibletrial.com forward slash slow and pick yourself a uh, an exceptional quality audio product. I'm actually reading... Um, you're, ab- you're actually obsessed with... Yes, thank you. A trilogy of books by Hugh Howey. It's called The Wool Series. And you can get at least the first two books in The Wool Series on Audible. And if you are like me and you enjoy dystopian fiction and just killer, amazing storytelling, then I would highly recommend you check out Wool on Audible uh, or even just at your library. But it's um, just a free shout out to Hugh Howie's books because they're uh-huh. awesome. Uh-huh. <laughs> so you can head to uh, audibletrial.com forward slash slow and check it out. I do believe that's it. My amazingly brilliant thought will be lost again. Oh, not if you we re- you remember it after we've recorded this, in which case we will say goodbye and then you will come on again with whatever okay. that thought is. <laughs> gonna Challenge be, accepted. going to be interesting to see. Whether that happens or not. Okay. Enjoy the podcast. Yes. Okay. I got it. Right. So if you, like you were saying, quality and quantity or even just quantity, you will be forever stuck on this hamster wheel, right? So you you attach more importance to this stuff than you necessarily 
should. Mm-hmm. So you buy the thing, then you upgrade the thing. You know what I mean? And you, you're yeah. constantly finding that you're... Vicious circle. Of, of consumption, basically. And yeah. none of us like to think about it in that term, but it is, you know. So we get the, the iPhone and then we want another iPhone. You know, we keep, if we keep putting value and importance on this stuff... Hmm. You you think that marketers and manufacturers and and advertisers don't know that? Yeah. Because then all of a sudden the next thing is the thing that we want and the next thing is the thing that we're told that we want and we continue to lose quality of connection and time and, you know, downtime hmm. because we're working so damn hard to make the money to buy the things that we continue to be told that we want. That's it. So I Instagrammed a quote from Bob Marley. Uh, during the week, the day you stop racing is the day you win the race. And I know a lot of people liked it. I know my friend Kelly Exeter couldn't get her head around it. (laughs) But to me, that is the key to stepping off that hamster wheel because otherwise you will continue to find something to race against and race for and, 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 you know, um, strive for in terms of, of that race. And I think stepping off is a good call. Absolutely. Thank you, Bob. Thank you, so, Mr. Miles. Thank you, Mr. Marley. And that was my brilliant thought. Thank you for coming back and listening to me. We better get on with this podcast, otherwise it's quickly becoming a hostful. A hostful, an unintentional hostful. Enjoy the show. Hey, Brooke, how are you? I'm really well. How are you? I'm all right, thanks. Thank you for getting up early. Oh, that's all right. Thank you for talking to me. <laughs> thanks it's, for having me on the show. No, it's um, it's good. I mean, we were saying before we, we hit record that we tried to connect last year, so it's lovely that uh, we've been able to make it make it the second time around. Um, now, congratulations on the success of your book. I mean, everywhere I'm turning, people are talking about it. Every time I ask... Uh, you know, listeners who they want to hear on the show, your name comes up. It's just, it's making waves. So congratulations. That's nice to hear. Thank you very much. A a good friend of mine who lives in Sydney uh, sent me a picture of the book in, I think it was some kind of airport uh, bookshop and it was in the windows, like, you know, the one being Herald is a book to buy, which was really exciting to see. That's very Um, exciting. Yeah, yeah, it's my first book, so it's been um, yeah, pretty exciting. <laughs> now, um, obviously, your your book is about stuff um, and its impact on us. Have you always been someone who's mindful of stuff and how it's overtaking our lives, or was there a time previously where you weren't you weren't aware of it at all and you kind of came to a realization? Yeah, um, no, I've not been one of those people. I just. Um, I think I'm just an average. Per- I mean, obviously, we, none of us want to think we're average, but you know, I, I um, you know, at times I've had fetishes for trainers. You know, I had lots of trainers. I had lots of records uh, at one point. I, I actually, if anything, I'd say. I mean, I, I'm not. I, I would never say I was crazy materialistic, but at the same time, at the weekend, I would look forward to going shopping. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I would say I would never say I was. I loved shopping, but I would 
you know, I'd buy lots of pairs of, uh, you know, there was a time I was into um, loafers. It's an amazing thing to admit. Now I feel like a fool. But, you know, and I would go out and I'd buy more and more pairs of loafers. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, once, once, I, <laughs> once I started um, investigating this book that I ended up writing, the more I did it, the more I started looking at the things that I had and thinking, I mean, I think a lot of people go through this process and um, looking at the clothes I had and think, why did I buy that? Yeah. I, you know, I just, <laughs> why have I got this thing that that I, you know, I, I thought I would build up a collection of these books or the, these things that, that I just don't wear or don't use and don't need and why did I bother? And it just seems, it seems really weird. It's almost that, you know, you, you take the... Um, the veil away from your eyes and think it just yeah it, it changes your perspective so i wouldn't say i was i was not i had not always been someone who's been very mindful of how much stuff i have no okay and was there like a moment or a catalyst or an article or something that you you came across or some kind of um you know turning point that caused you to be interested in writing the book and and to start you know researching it or was that um, you know, driven by a different kind of decision? I think it was gradual. I, I sometimes I've, I've, I've been asked that kind of question before. And some, uh, there was, um, there was a, a note that my uh, grandfather gave me on the day that he died. Uh, and, and he wasn't in the habit of giving me notes. So it was quite a surreal thing. And then it, is, it ended with good luck. But just before that, he said, uh, memories live longer than dreams which is quite a deep thing to say. And um, I mean, he wasn't the kind of person that said things like that. You know, it was, it was quite, everything about that note is very surreal. Um, I can only vaguely imagine that he may have known that he was going to die in some way that day, except for it, it was a quite a random occurrence that, that, uh, that he did die. Um, and I think that set me thinking about what mattered in life because that day I'd been talking big about, I had a job in advertising at the time and I was at a new flat in South London. It was a big flat and it was, you know, and I think I was talking big about what I was going to do with my life and where I was going to go. And I think he almost just wanted to sort of put my back, not back in my place, but it's kind of say, look, you know, bear in mind what matters in life. But I think I only can see that on reflection and it was just the work that I did. Since 2004, I've been a part of my business and increasingly my business has been in the world of cultural analysis and trend forecasting. So for, for publications from The Economist and New York Times to The Sunday Times and to clients from um, Absolute to BMW to... Um, let me think of someone at the other end of the spectrum, Zurich Financial um, um, Companies, Zurich Insurance Group. Um, I've been helping companies understand the future, understand the way that our culture is changing. And as part of that work, it became clear to me that there is a significant problems in our culture. There's problems that really are coming from materialism as the value system which underpins capitalism. And been thinking, and I would say probably from about particularly 07, 08, and the, you know, the financial crash, thinking, okay, what does this mean for the world? What's going on? How can we fix it? So I think it was a gradual thing. I then uh, wrote something for the Times, uh, the Times of London, and I was asked to write a column on, um, I think it was the future of hospitality. And I ended up writing this 
thing about this this word experientialism. I coined it for this piece, and the the editor just threw it back to me. This was a uh, a freelance piece I was doing, and said, "Look, this is what wasn't my ask for. Give me the piece I asked for," which I then did, and that was fine, you know. Just um, but I then sat with this kind of like, "Wow, okay, hold on, how does that fit together with this problem?" And I started to just um, yeah think about it, and I think that's I think that's where the book is original and why i've got something to say and that i've put together this problem of materialism with this idea of experientialism in a way that no one else has done i think lots of people have identified i mean you'd have to be nuts not to realize there are some significant problems with capitalism some significant problems with our system as it stands today and lots of people have been punting their ideas about how we solve this problem and what we do next and um I think what I've done that's different is I've identified this particular answer. Yeah, I agree. Actually, um, I mean, often there are there are a huge number of books and products and things out there talking about the same problems. You know, the fact that we're building <laughs> we're building a house of cards um, in terms of the economy and you know the ongoing issues <laughs> that underpin capitalism. But what I love about what you're doing is you're offering a solution that um, that people can can see. I mean, look, people are inherently self you know self involved, and not only do people see the issue and they see the problem and they want that problem to be solved, but they uh, you know they don't want to necessarily be made to feel horribly bad about it either. Mm-hmm. And what I love yeah. about what you're doing is providing this this suggestion that experiences are greater than things and people can get behind that you know it's <laughs> yeah it's it's i think it's it's fantastic and it's opening up the conversation in a different kind of way um which is really really valuable thank you and i agree with you i think one of the reasons why i ended up getting excited about it was that most of the solutions Mate, you sort of just, it's, it's, more, it's more stick than carrot. It's like, you're a bad person, you're a consumer, you buy all this stuff, this is what you do. You, you're just wrong in some way. And the problem with solutions, and minimalism is a great example of that, for, in my view, is that it starts from this place that says, the system is bad, the system is wrong, have less stuff. Now, ultimately, if you talk to minimalists, of course, and if you look at most minimalist creeds, it's really about getting away from materialism and you know the maximal creed of more, 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 so that you've got room for other things. But it seems to me that what where experientialism works as an idea and this idea of you know experiences being great is it's positive, it's aspirational, it's fun. You know the thought of um, that you know that there's a problem with our system and we're bad people means that you don't really want to play that game. Whereas if someone says to you, hey, I've got a great idea, instead of spending all your money on stuff, which makes you feel guilty, makes you feel bad about the environment and doesn't make you any happier, why don't you go spend your money and your time on experiences instead? That's exciting and fun and it solves a problem, both personally for you in terms of you know happiness, anxiety, stress and depression. You're going to be further away from those bad things and further towards the good stuff of happiness. But at the same time, it's better for the planet and it's better for our society as well. So it's, it's, um, it's win-win for everybody, you know? It is. It <laughs> is. And I think that's one of the, the things that I come up against a lot, you know, when people – hear me talk about simplifying or, you know, having less stuff. And they, they ask if that means minimalism. Like, well, you can call it that if you want, but what it's really about is tapping into what's important and, you know, going and living 
in accordance with that. And the things that are important turn out to not really be things at all. Um, Mm. And I think that's definitely like an image problem that that minimalism can have. Uh, And as you say, you talk to people who who prescribe to you know minimalism, and it's it's not a dissimilar thing to what you're talking about. But I just think that the solutions that you're presenting are they're positive and they're yeah they're fun and they're something that people can get behind and feel good about. Uh, it's really interesting what you say about the similarities because do you know Joshua Becker, Brooke? Have I do. Yeah, that? he's been on the show before. Oh, fantastic! You know he's got a new book coming out. Yes. Okay, just because um, I don't know if you've seen it yet, but it's a great book and it really. Um, I don't know, it flips something in me as well. I really, I really like it. It's a really, it's a, it's a good book. It, it really inspired me to get rid of more of my stuff, <laughs> which is a really good thing. Um, at the same time, I, and I think he's doing a very good job actually in, in, in this new book of re, read, redefine, I think redefining minimalism to make it more popular. But there's this, if you come across the phrase uh, crossing the chasm, so it's a, product thing but it's also it's a the idea that there's a real jump between the innovators and early adopters and the majority and i think that one of the fundamental problems with minimalism unless somebody really gets hold of it and read well i think that's what joshua's trying to do but is that it's stuck with this term it's stuck Mm. with the term of minimalism and that just isn't very exciting. There's some kind of suggestion. This is this is my my view of it. Obviously, it it just feels a bit negative. And um, if you look at the numbers, obviously I'm a cultural analyst as well. You know, this is not just manifest of what I think people should do. It's but it's my observation of what I think is happening, what I think is going to happen. Um, I think for I think there's a real challenge for minimalism to cross the chasm from the risk friendly. Uh, innovators and early adopter types and to cross that chasm to the, the majority of people. I think there are a lot of people out there who will hear the term and it doesn't appeal to them. It's going to be hard for them to embrace that kind of idea. Be- I think almost because the way it's, dis- you know, I, I got caught in this conversation that earlier today actually with somebody about, I think about experientialism, you can picture what it is. Whereas with minimalism, the starting point is what it isn't. <laughs> so it's a bit like, you know, giving up smoking or giving up chocolate or giving up cake or giving up sugar. You know, sugar is this, this terrible thing. Um, if you focus on the sugar, if you focus on the chocolate, if you focus on the cigarettes and you focus on the thing you're trying to give up, it's going to make giving up that much harder. You know, that uh, phrase, the thing that you resist is the thing that persists or some sort of phrase like that, right? The thing you focus on, if you, and if you look at behavioral psychology, you know, like Dan, from Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow and all the work he's been doing, um, the most important uh, heuristic, the way that we make decisions, is the availability heuristic. The availability heuristic kills all others. So if you spend all your day thinking, I mustn't drink coffee, I mustn't eat sugar, I mustn't have cake, I mustn't eat chocolate, you that's the thing that's going to be in your mind Absolutely. and so therefore you're going to you're going to go have coffee or chocolate or smoke a cigarette or that thing and so if you focus on minimalism and you focus on not having stuff that's where your focus is and the magic of experientialism is it's forget the stuff which is what a lot of minimalists say anyway it's not about the stuff it's about what matters in life and the magic of experientialism is is it focuses square on on what you should go for 
the experiences, spend your time, spend your focus, spend your money on doing something. And it's also woolly enough, a bit like freedom, that you can kind of make it mean what you want it to mean, whilst it also having its core meaning. Do you, do you see what I mean? Oh, absolutely. No, I I agree with you completely. Um, and I think, yeah, that that's absolutely been my experience. You know, people will push back when they hear me talk about sim- like simplifying, because they, they kind of put it in the same basket as minimalism, which is fair enough. Um, and... And they start thinking about what they have to do without. Whereas the way hmm. I see it is it's actually what you gain. You know, you gain time and you gain, um, you know, energy and you gain space, but you also gain, um, you know, freedom from having to buy these things that we continue to buy. And we travel more as a result and we have more time together as a family. We go for adventures and bushwalks and that kind of stuff. And for me, it's always been a focus on what you gain, but I can really understand why people approach it from this kind of scarcity mindset, which is ironic anyway. But um, it's, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, Brooke, I agree I, with you. Can we just play with that idea? Because that is interesting, because a lot of people will have that feeling. You know, it's the, you know, Barry Schwartz's book, The Paradox of Choice. Yes. Uh, and Bar- Barry was brilliant. I, you know, I've talked to him a, a number of times about this, and it, it's, um, you know, if you think about the way that somebody buys a phone or makes decisions when they're choosing what to learn at school, it's always about keeping your options open. And, and the, the, you know, this comes from The Economist. And, you know, the fundamental way that our system is set up and driven by the success of economists and, the, and um, economics in the 20th century. And you see, the thing for um, economists... It, that they start from a, you know, uh, sorry, I don't know if this is really obvious and everybody knows this, but it's it, the practice of economics comes from a scarcity mindset. The definition of economics was was from some guy in the 20s. I'm trying to think what his name is. He's got some na- name like Lyon or something. He was involved at the LSC, the London School of Economics, which was only founded about 1904, 1905. The, the study of economics at universities only um, happened at the late 19th, early 20th, early 20th century properly as its own subject. And what the economists do, the way that they work things out, especially the the closest proxy they have for happiness is um, preference satisfaction. Okay, so the idea is that the more preferences that you can satisfy, the not quite happier you are, but the more successful a system is. So for them, for the economists, the more options you have, the more preferences you can satisfy, the happier or the closest they can get to it you will be. Um, so therefore, the idea of less choice feels like it's not heading in the right direction. Do you see what I mean? Absolutely, yeah. So I wonder if there's a way of, of, of re, <laughs> rebranding simplification. Because do you, have you come across that woman who does the five R's? The, is it the zero waste home? B, um, B. somebody. B. Johnson, yeah. B. Johnson, yeah. I was on a um, Radio 4 program with her recently. And she's, I think she's brilliant. One of the things that, you know, that she she talks about exactly as you said there is that their life of less waste it doesn't mean they don't have stuff they've all got smartphones they have really amazing holidays she really believes in that i wonder if it it should be called um i don't know you know holidayism or something like this where it's like you know we, we don't waste our our time and our money buying stuff we have less of that so we can have more of the other do you see what i mean because we all believe in the idea of progress. You know, it's a, since the Enlightenment, we believe that, you know, let's not say it's, we're, we're done here. So I gave a talk, I mean, sorry if I'm just going on, but I, 
I gave a talk recently to um, it was like a health and well being day to a group of about about twenty five thirty women, and and I, I wanted them to play this game that I like people to play. I I call it the um, what do I call it now. I call it the Bru- I like to call it the Brewster's Millions game. Uh, or uh, named after the movie, which you're probably too young to remember. But basically, you have to spend a month not buying any stuff. You just spend your money on experiences. Spend all the money you would usually spend on stuff, spend it on experiences. And there was one woman who put her hand up, a girl called Katie, and she said, um, look, I'm really busy at the moment. I'm working, I think she was saying she was working like 16, 17-hour days. She was working really hard. She's got a business that's doing very well. And she said, look, I don't have time to have these experiences. So when I want to stop and treat myself, I want to buy something. And you can imagine my reaction. I kind of had this, you know, awful look on my face. <laughs> You're mad. I mean, this, is just, this isn't going to treat yourself. But her point was she needed something, some kind of almost let off, you know. And I, I tried to explain to her that I mean, for a start, we need to redefine what treating is. Because what she would do by buying some more stuff is she would create a problem where she needs to earn money to buy that stuff. So she would be setting herself up into a vicious cycle of needing to earn money to buy something she doesn't really need that isn't going to bring her any happiness. She'd be much better off saving that until she has got some time. Um, anyway, I'm just wondering here. I just, I just don't know. I just, it, it, the idea of having less needs to be given a positive spin. I think the best term that I've come across for it is experientialism. So um, I guess what I'm saying to you, Brooke, is I think you should use that term. <laughs> I think no, and I think it's it's the people that I see talking about experientialism are people who wouldn't talk about minimalism. Um, right. I mean, there's definitely people who who cover both, and you know, because yeah. they're all in on this concept of less stuff, more life. But um, a lot of people, like on the periphery of that group, maybe people who are on the other side of the chasm, as you say, uh, are are talking about it because they're excited by it. You know, a lot of people, almost everyone loves the idea of doing fun things. Not everyone loves to travel, but a lot of people do. And other people like to do fun things at home, you know, Um, or even just to have the opportunity to have a quiet weekend or have some quiet time or spend quality time with friends or go to the pub or, you know, those things that, we we, we they sometimes get shoved to the side because we're too busy working or we're too busy shopping or buying money or um, spending money or whatever. Um, yeah. So I definitely think that it's a much it's got much broader appeal, um, and I think I might start using it. So thank you. Ah, well, thanks. <laughs> I just just the thought, Brooke. Um, sorry to spin this round, but wh- why do you think some people go for this term of minimalism and some people go for this term of experientialism? I've got my own thoughts on it, but I'd love to hear what you think. And, and, and my, I guess my follow-up comment, question to that would be, how do we get the minimalists to embrace this idea of experientialism, to spread the message more? But let's start with, uh, what, do, what do you think? Why do you think some people go for minimalism, not experientialism, even though the two are quite similar in concept? Um, it's a really good question because once you dig in a little, they are very, very similar. But I think, I mean, I think there are people who – are more drawn to a, a physical environment of less stuff. Uh, and once they, they recognize that, once they recognize that the clutter is, is stopping them from living life the way they want to, they're all in on the idea of getting rid of the stuff. And sometimes the, the benefits beyond you know, the physical clutter-free environment take more time to become apparent. That was my 
that was sort of my journey. I was diagnosed with postnatal depression after our, um, right. our second child was born. It was pretty severe and I was in a, like a really bad place. But part of my, my journey, for want of a better word, um, was to try and simplify my life. Um, and I didn't know how to do that. So I started by decluttering after reading um, a couple of blogs and habits being one of them. Um, and I started decluttering our house and it took me a good two years to work oh. through our house. And again, we weren't hoarders, you know, we just had the crap that comes with being, you know, <laughs> modern people. We had a two car garage full of boxes of stuff yes. that I didn't know what was in them. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, and that took, that took time, but it was only after that first couple of years that I could see the additional benefits really of, of simplifying and I guess embracing minimalism to a certain point. And that's when, for me, it became apparent that there was so much more to gain than just having an empty shelf. It was more about uh, the life that we could then have as a result. So I think some people jump into minimalism because it speaks to what they want to control maybe in their, like their physical environment, whereas other people either aren't aware of the fact that it's a problem or it's just not a problem for them. And they, they want – it's that mentality of treating themselves and – the experience side of it fits as well, you know, particularly for people who have concerns about the environment and, you know, how yeah. excess consumerism is impacting the environment, which is pretty obvious. I mean, I think you'd have to be living in a cave to not recognize that, but. Or a politician yeah. who keeps on signing off on coal and stuff like that, right? Oh, man. Like, and that's, that's another question that I want to dig into you, with you. Hey, I, I want to just play with what, that idea because I think that's really interesting. So some people, they start with the, the problem of, um, and I'm sorry to hear about, you know, what you went through, but it sounds like you come through the other side. So that's great. You know, that's, um, so some people start with the problem and they're kind of like, how do I control this? And they start with uh, dealing with the stuff. And from that, their journey becomes too much stuff as, as a, I don't know, as a, let's say that's a proxy but that for the problem. The problem is this. Deal with that, get in control of life, and then have an opportunity to breathe and see, okay, now I've got this stuff out of the way. Oh, what matters? Oh, okay, it's more about experiences. So there's kind of like the journey is problem. Problem seems to be the stuff in some way. A bit like um, – I'm trying to think of the name of the woman in my book now. Uh, <laughs> the one who, who goes on the journey of voluntary simplicity. Uh, Amy. Uh, M-A. M-A. It's Amy, but A-I-M-E-A-Q-E. Uh, M-A. Um, amazing. I couldn't remember her name. Huh? Uh, <laughs> and um, so getting, rid of, getting on top of the stuff and getting on top of the stuff means getting rid of a whole bunch of it. So step one is problem solution is minimalism and then like ah free what can i do now and then to let's call it experientialism whereas for other people they don't have the problem with stuff in the first place but they might have some kind of i don't know they just like they're just moving generally they move to the experiences and maybe having less stuff comes along as part of that journey yeah i'm making it up now i'm just trying to play with that just to see how it works for different people no i mean i've t i've taught a few workshops over the past 12 months and i've definitely yeah. seen people coming at it from both sides um so people who have a similar kind of trajectory to me and then people yeah. who come at it from either you know kind of adopting like a more mindful way of living and and how they're spending their time which is you know essentially tapping into that idea of experientialism as well um and it's it's really interesting because i find that people who who get all in on this idea no matter what side or what part they come from they end up pretty much at the same place which is a lot less stuff and a lot more 
life, a lot more experience, you know, a lot more, a lot more living. Um, and I find that really interesting because again, I think people get caught up in the process, like the right way to do it, the right way to do these, these kind of lifestyle changes. And I don't think that that necessarily exists. I think you get in and you, you know, you start making the changes that you need to make or that, that feel the most important to you. And, um, yeah, it's it's really it's fascinating to watch people kind of expand that reach throughout the way they're living. I think it's a re- I really like the way you put that. That you know, there are different ways to do it. There's different journeys with different people, and it's made me think of the idea that um, you know the two reasons that we change are des- desperation and enlightenment, mm-hmm. and to an extent, maybe. I'm oversimplifying, but I'm always trying to model these things and trying to analyze them. You know, it's my my business, right? Um, you know, desperation tends to be minimalism. Desperation, here's my problem. You know, the, the realization there is a problem. I need to do something about it. So minimalism is the first step and then on to experientialism, you know, and, and, and the stuff comes first. Whereas for some enlightenment, suddenly realizes, hey, all this stuff isn't making me any happier. I need to... Uh, um, you know, move move away from buying stuff and do experiences instead. But actually, as I'm saying that, if you think about the minimalists, you know, Joshua Fields Milburn and Ryan Nicodemus, uh, who who are at the beginning of um, of suffocation, they have that blog, the minimalists. Mm-hmm. Of course, they did. Em- I mean, they've totally. Em- I mean, by definition, they've embraced minimalism, even if they define it in similar terms to what I would call experientialism. Um, so that's the. Ignore that analysis. I'm completely wrong. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm just trying it out here. You know, we'll see. <laughs> we're, we're, we're feeling stuff out. It's fine. It's good. I like it. Yeah. Uh, um, so, it's completely wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I mean, you, you adopted this idea of experientialism and as a result, did you then just start removing stuff from your life, like physical items from your life in your house? Was that part of the process for you? No, not at first, actually, because uh, so the book is two things. It's a forecast and a manifesto. And when I first put it together, there was no manifesto in there. I find in life, I don't like people that tell me how I should live and what I should do. Mm -hmm. I find them annoying. And I've now become one of those annoying people. (laughs) But genuinely, you know, I don't need someone to tell me how to live. But and, and what... I was looking to do was to practice my skills as a cultural analyst and a trend forecaster and say, hey, there's this problem with the planet, there's, with the planet because of, because of ca- the, the incredible, you know, um, fuck off success of, um, sorry, is that all right to swear? <laughs> sorry, this amazing success of capitalism has, you know, lucky us that our problem is too much stuff. Lucky us that we don't need to worry about there being food on the table to eat tomorrow. Um, and you know, for ninety nine percent of people, for ninety nine percent of human existence, biggest problem has been, you know, finding enough food to feed the family. Lucky us, we don't need to worry about that. So you know, capitalism's great, but there's this problem. So how how are we going to fix it? And the, the skills I've been using for these companies, I decided to use on culture and work out where I thought it was going to be going. So when I first approached this, it was very much a question of use those skills, look at what the innovators and the early adopters are doing, understand um, you know, the political, economic, socio-cultural, technological, aesthetic, demographic, and other you know, major trends that are affecting our society and understand what the future holds. And I 
looked at the signs and I believe that we are shifting from materialism to this idea called experientialism. And then, sorry, I hope you don't mind me giving you a long version. Um, and then I, and then I came across some research that made me think, whoa, hold on, I better share this. And that was the research in the book that shows that, or no, shows is too strong. Um, suggests that too much stuff could be bad for you, bad for your health. And the, and the overwhelming evidence that really I think proves is a reasonable word to say here that experiences are better than material goods at making us happy. And once I saw that, I thought, well, I better share this information. And it did start to change my life. Um, and also, to, I mean, talking to some of the world's great, you know, declutterers and downshifters and cross shifters, I was like, wow, this is making these people happy. Maybe I can try it too. And so I did it a little bit as, as little experiments, really. You know, I kind of went through different parts of my life, putting things into bags and thinking, just put it away, see if I don't need it or not. But I wanted to do it in a gentle way. You know, it's one of the things when I, you know, people say to, say to me, how should I do it? You know, some people say literally just throw things away. And I like the maybe pile. You know, when we do it, we have a keep, throw, maybe. And the maybe pile is always the biggest one. Because, you know, it's the part I look at and think, well, I haven't used it for a bit, but will I? And the magic of the maybe part is it makes it easier to get rid of stuff because getting rid of something feels hard if you're used to holding on to things. Um, You know, if you come from a place of um, scarcity and most of us come from a time when we didn't have so much stuff. I say that. I was born in the 70s. Um, So we, we look after our stuff and we hold on to our stuff. And so maybe feels a bit more relaxing because you can always go back and get it but then again you look again a month later and 70 percent of that stuff you think ah oh, <laughs> i just missed that that can go uh, but it's easier it's a more gentle way of doing it it is um and that's something that i've i talk to people about a lot too because it, it, it just takes time particularly if you're really you're struggling through the process <laughs> um you know it takes time for stuff to transition from you know maybe i might need it to clutter and sometimes that that time is just time that you stick it in a box and you forget about it for a month or two and you go back and 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 then it becomes apparent well this is not important this is not this is not something i've needed first of all um and it's also not something that i feel like i need to keep anymore i think um i'm with you i'm i'm big on slow obviously but i'm I'm, yeah i'm I'm intrigued that you say because i read uh, that marie kondo book which Mm -hmm. i imagine read at some point and I, I i had to read it i was because i was on this radio four show and they wanted me to have read it so i read it in about i mean it's amazing i don't know if you've read it but it's really easy to read it took me 45 minutes to spin through it and she has this real thing that you should do it right once and, and be really extreme when it's done and obviously i mean the woman is, is you know she sold uh more copies of her book than i've sold of mine um i mean it's a much, very different book it's much simpler you know it's about getting rid of stuff um I'm fascinated by that as an idea because it seems to really help people. But even for myself and for my family, I just wouldn't want to do it in a weekend or do it really suddenly. I I like that process because it helps me change as a person. So I'm intrigued that you say that as well. But I guess that comes with thing right no i i'm i'm with you on the marie kondo book and um i've got <laughs> i've had a, a bit of pushback because it's not my favorite way of doing things but it doesn't have to be you know it's not about me it's about what works yeah. for people and her approach works for a lot of people like i speak yeah. to a lot of people who have followed her book and her suggestions and have been successful which is okay. awesome you know it's it but for me it's uh, it's more about the process. Like I've, I, I wouldn't change those two years it took me to declutter my house because I learnt so much. Whereas mm-hmm. I, f- I feel like if I had have tried to do that, 
in a month, for example, first of all, I probably would have lost my mind. And second of all, I don't think I would have learned as much about the reason why I was keeping stuff and what it was, what kind of need it was filling in me and, you know, why I had it in the first place. I just don't think I would have had the time to process all of that uh, if I had yeah. tried to do it in such a short period of time. But, you know, ultimately it's whatever works for, for individual people, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with you. I, 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 I'm with you on the – I like – I the iterative process makes sense to me. If I'd just thrown away all my um, – you know, I, I studied classics as my first degree, and um, it, it took me a while to realise I wasn't going to read Sophocles in the original Greek again. <laughs> you know, I, I vaguely enjoyed that. No, I did enjoy it. It was brilliant. It's, uh, you know, it's fantastic. But I'm just, I'm kind of done with reading, um, you know, two and a half thousand year old Greek words. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like once is enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm done. Yeah, it was good. I enjoyed it, but I'm just, um, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, and that's that's the thing, isn't it? It's just time. It's time and, and, and distance sometimes, I think, that, that makes all the difference in those kinds of decisions. Um, so go back a few years, you know, before you had done this research, before you'd started to make these changes. Um, how is life different for you now? I mean, is it on the whole a more positive life? Are you, are you, do you feel happier? Do you have, I mean, you have less stuff? Oh, I'm really lucky because I've been in that, in that process. I've had two kids, <laughs> so um, I, I have far less stuff. Actually, our house. We live in a, a, a fairly small house in in London, and um, it's meant our house has become just much more pleasant to be in. <laughs> That's the first thing. And we have we have two young children. You know, my little girl is four and a half. My little boy is about to turn two. And kids, as you know, Brooke, come with a lot of stuff. You they know, do. and my um, my lovely mom, uh, mom and my stepmother and my dad and my stepdad and my in laws. They like to buy stuff for their grandkids, and we have to try and talk them out of some of that stuff. But some of that stuff comes in the house. But it, it, it's meant that we got rid of some of the bigger pictures that we had we got rid of um, a coffee table that was nice and you know it was this designer coffee table but it just took up a lot of space we didn't need it um books we got rid of loads of books and getting rid of books is tough has been very tough for me at first you know it takes me back to that i remember studying modern history you know the nazis burning the books on kind of crystal knacked or whenever it was you know i had this kind of thing in my head and i was obviously as a writer and someone who's read quite a lot of books in his life getting rid of books felt like sacrilege but i realized that there are books that i've got that i'm never going to read again get rid of those books there's books that i've got that i'm never going to get round to read those can go as well i have a very small section now of books that i haven't read and if i read a new book and it isn't one of those one of those has to go because if i'm not going to read it now you know there's that you know those books that you have that you think i'm going to read that and then when it comes to the next time, you know, you're starting a new book, you look and you think, oh, no, not now. I'll read it another time. <laughs> that means you're not – I mean, what are you doing keeping that book? Get rid of the book, you know. And I, I've started doing that. So that's just – it's just very relaxing that the books are on my shelf. Obviously, I'm a writer. I'm a nonfiction writer. So I do keep some books that I go back to and I've got notes all through them. And there are books – did a lot of research for this book. So I keep those books because they're, they're my workbooks. But – the books on my shelf now, ones that I've got, a, you know, I've got a copy of To Kill a Mockingbird, but I used to have three copies of To Kill a Mockingbird, <laughs> and that was ridiculous. Um, but even with the pictures on our wall, we have 
smaller pictures on our wall and it just gives a sense of space and um yeah we have a um we have a really crappy car but it works and i know that um if uh, i've got some pieces of work that are coming in at the moment and i know that part of me thinks oh you know we could maybe buy a new car but i know that the money won't go on buying a new car we'll spend it on holiday I mean, why would I, what's the point, you know, I'm going to get, what's the point getting a new car when I could take my family away? And yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. What's the point, you know, yeah. it's, um, yeah, that's, it's a really good question to ask when you're faced with that kind of choice, I think. Do you think, um, that just society in general, do you think that we've reached peak stuff or are we seeing a shift back towards experiences over stuff or is that just me you know with a confirmation bias because of the the people i speak to hell yeah we've reached peak stuff uh there was a document published by guy um i'm trying to think of his name he runs some uh he's a he's a, a analyst it was published back in 2011 it's one of the things that made me really believe this was happening that, that was, he's got i mean robust data that shows that as well as our attitude our behavior is changing we are consuming less stuff and there's there's lots of bits of data. There's, um, I don't want to plug my website, but I, I run a small uh, think tank called The Future Is Here, and on there I've published a couple of pieces. Can I mention the website? Sorry, I don't want to. No, 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 please. I mean, it's it's thefish.co, so it's thefish, T-H-E-F-I-S-H dot C-O. And there's a couple of pieces on there, which is based on data from Bloomberg looking at shares, uh, the US government, the UK government, the EU. Sorry, I don't know if there's any Aussie data specifically, re- but this is um, published in the last month that shows there is a fundamental shift from experiences to stuff. And it's obviously exciting for me to come across this because it means that when I forecast this a couple of years ago, I was right. <laughs> I can say that. <laughs> you, know, you know, this is one of the things when I wrote this book, all my friends thought I was just ridiculous said oh look james you know it's not changing you're wrong and obviously the easy answer to that is well of course things do change and we became materialistic consumers in the 20th century so why won't we change in the 21st century that makes perfect sense um you know it's more likely that things will change and they won't change the question is how are they going mm. to change and um there is robust data that illustrates that we are passing the point of peak stuff so, um, you know, lucky us in the first world, rich countries, the other countries aren't doing it yet, but they're getting there. Yeah. Okay. And that's, I mean, that's a whole other, other side of the, the issue too, isn't it? I mean, because it's, <laughs> I find it a, kind of an interesting place to be at where in more developed nations, we're now talking about too much stuff and, you know, we're, we're getting rid of it. We're going to tend towards experiences, whereas people in developing nations, particularly those that are growing and people are building wealth where they they never had it before, now they're looking at the way that the Western world has lived for the last 50 years, thinking this is this is it, this is what we want, and we're kind of crapping on that idea already. And it's I find it a really <laughs> interesting kind of problem, um, and I, I don't know how to process it, I don't know how to, what to do with it, but it's... Um, don't yeah. worry about it. I love your Aussie phrase that we're crapping on that idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bringing it down. Yeah, you know, I really like that. It's great. Um, look, don't worry about that. And chapter nine of the book is called What About the Chinese? 
uh, and it addresses exactly this issue. And I wrestled mm. with this for a bit, but not for very long. It took 150, 160 odd years for our industrial revolution or industrial revolutions, but we just call it industrial revolution. We tend to nowadays uh, to happen. And um, it took, you know, best part of 100 years of consumer revolution to get to this point. Uh, the Chinese industrial revolution has taken taken place in less than a third of the time their consumer revolution has taken place incredibly quickly and they are reaching stuffocation in some ways it's obviously different over there but just as our revolutions have taken place quick more quickly and all the um you know the problems that come with stuffocation there are a number of problems but the key drivers of this are the happiness deficit you know mm. the stress the anxiety the, the depression that has come with materialistic consumerism and the problem with the environment those problems are becoming manifest in the new emerging countries where consumerism is taking off already so it took a while for anyone to realize there was a real problem with the environment in our, in you know, in the lucky, in, in us, where um, in terms of you know, after our consumer revolution had happened, and it's happening much quicker over there. So it's my my take on it is, of course, it will happen differently. But the problems of suffocation are coming to those places as well. In fact, I'm giving a um, one of those um, TED talks, a TEDx talk at LSE, um, London School of Economics, in uh, a month or so's time. Is a Indian guy who came across my book, and he was telling me about how stuffocation feels very relevant there not for all 1.3 billion people in india i mean there are some people who clearly do not have too much stuff uh but it's really interesting for me to hear that this resonates with some people over there already and i guess that's uh one of the benefits of the internet as well you know people are much more connected so these ideas that may have spread a lot more slowly in previous generations have the opportunity to travel you know across borders immediately um so that that could well be a part of the reason why as you say the revolutions are happening much quicker as well that's my hope you know the law of accelerating returns ray kurtzfeld's idea things happen much more quickly you know think how long it took color tv to take off compared to the smartphone Mm -hmm. um do you ever feel kind of overwhelmed by the the issue i mean this is this is a more of a i guess a pessimistic question which i i find myself dipping into this feeling of feeling just overwhelmed and sad about the whole situation sometimes do you feel that or do you just have a continuous stream of hope about where we're going what worried about what situation do you mean about um, vacation is the, is the problem or of, of, of what no look i mean it, it, typically it only ever bothers me if i find myself in a shopping center and you know i'm just i, I get physically overwhelmed by stuff Brooke, what and, the hell are you doing in a shopping center i'm going to the bank <laughs> to be fair <laughs> why are you going to a bank <laughs> to save money for our holiday but surely you do it um Digitally, don't you? By phone I do. Or? No, I was cashing. I was cashing a check. Um, <laughs> which who gives you checks? Uh, Am- checks? Amazon give me checks. What? Mm-hmm. Oh, horrible! It, re- it uh, is okay. in lots of different. So the first thing, okay, so I mean, the first thing to do is do what you have to do and get out of the shopping centre <laughs> as quick as possible. Uh, yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't bother me. I, I think that um, because humans find problems and find solutions. Mm-hmm. That what that's what we do. 
Um, so it doesn't worry me at all. You know, we, we came up to this problem of uh, overproduction. And I say we, the Americans, came up against it first because the magic of the machines of the Industrial Revolution were producing too much. And that one is one of the reasons that led to the 1929 crash. Uh, but there was this problem of overproduction. The people then were very clever, I think, and they switched that way of thinking to think of it as underconsumption. Mm. They took the frugal, careful, thrifty people of America and they turned them into wasteful, profligate, throwaway, conspicuous consumers. Now, we all hate the idea of throwaway culture. Now, it sounds awful. But it was an awesome idea. You know, it's the idea that turned scarcity for the masses into abundance for the masses. Lucky us that those clever people did that. Of course, we've got the happiness deficit. But life expectancy at birth, uh, the big, uh, about 1900, for, for rich Western countries, was about 44, 45. Life expectancy at birth today is almost twice that. Mm. And there are people, I mean, if you come across any of that research, but it suggests that we're going to be living much longer in the future, lucky us. Now, even if you're depressed or stressed, still you've got a lot longer to spend. <laughs> you know, you got you, you know, if you if you die at eighty and you're depressed most of that time, you've still got a few bits of time you can have with friends to have a nice time. Um, and that's not only because of capitalism. You know, the breakthroughs have happened for all sorts of reasons. But the truth is, if you're living in a wealthier country, you've got spare money to spend on healthcare. Again, lucky us. So humans come across problems they work out ways to solve them and those those solutions then live, lead to new problems and they then solve those again and i think that's what we'll do you know sometimes people say to me look this is great james you you, you really think that if someone just decides that they're not going to spend money on getting a new car they're going to go to south america on holiday do you not realize the impact of that in terms of, you know, flying there? You know, that, that footprint is appalling. And I think that misses a whole, you know, there's, there's all sorts of problems. With that. I mean, one is that, um, you know, transport is, is responsible for what is it, about 5% of carbon emissions. So, yeah, it's, it's a significant problem. But it's nothing compared to buildings. You know, one of the um, revolutions that I think will come and is coming with this move from materialism to experientialism. Once you swap stuff for experiences, you don't need such a big house. Homes, buildings are a massive cause. I think they're, they're responsible, certainly in the States, for 50% or something of, um, of, of footprint, right? Mm. Of our carbon footprint. So if you shift from a bigger home and thinking that what you want is a bigger home to realizing that you're going to be happier in your smaller home, and if you think about, you know, the tiny home movement, no one would have talked about a tiny home movement 20 years ago. And Australia, actually, I think Australians are worse than anyone else about having the world's biggest homes. I think they have even bigger homes than the Americans. Um, but, the, the, you know, the American home has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and it's the same with the Aussie home. And I think what we're going to see is that tailing off or becoming smaller. Mm. Um, and, and hold on, to come back to what I was therefore saying, so... You know, you look at the transport industry, you look at uh, air flight, what we will see over the next decades is the footprint of air travel getting smaller and smaller and smaller because they are innovating. They're making that much better. So if you shift the way you look for happiness, identity and status from material goods to experiences, even if that creates a footprint at the moment, you'll be supporting an industry that by definition isn't predicated on stuff, isn't predicated on hauling things out the ground to make 
things. If you think about things and you and you look at the notes that come with the the, the video, the story of stuff, it, I think it's if for every thing that we have that we buy as um, a consumer product, that's created something like seventy um, trash cans bin bags, whatever, of, 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 of waste upstream to create that thing. I mean, gold is a really good example. Gold is fundamentally evil. Mm. If you're bothered about footprint, jewels are not a good way to go because to get gold out of the ground is really, really wasteful. Okay. Sorry, I'm just going off on one. But So um, what was I saying? Problem, solution, we'll solve the problem. Don't worry about it. Okay. <laughs> I mean, look, I do agree with you. It's I think sometimes and it's only when I, I do find myself in those kind of environments that I just avoid now um, yeah. that I ever feel kind of that that pit of my stomach sort of feeling. And I do I do agree with you. And 95 percent of the time I have a lot of hope. So you've just filled that five percent in for me. Um, <laughs> I, I, mean, I couldn't agree more with you about the idea of experiences. I just, my husband and I are taking our kids on a holiday in a, about a month's time. Um, and it's something that we just, it's what we work towards, you know, it's, um, and as you've said a number of times, we're incredibly lucky to be able to work towards something like that. Don't get me wrong. Um, but I just, there's just so much joy in being able to, to do that. And yeah, we don't have as much stuff, but that's, that's actually another benefit. It's not a drawback at all. Uh, so it's been really wonderful talking to you about it. Thanks, Brooke. Thanks yeah. for having me. Really interesting. It really made me think of some things I hadn't thought of before. So I listened, look forward to uh, hearing the conversation. And yeah, it's really set me thinking. Thank you. Excellent. No, thank you, James. It's um. been another episode of the slow home podcast if you enjoyed it be sure to subscribe via itunes and leave us a rating or a review thanks for listening jack rabbit fm for your ears who is that hi podcast